0: Well, good to see all of you guys here. Anybody barbecuing tomorrow? Yeah? You guys uh, inviting other people to come? The Hong family is looking for a good barbecue to attend, just FYI. Okay. Um, So, uh, the show Lost came to an end. Which for some of you is like, thank God, now people could just stop talking about the stupid show. Yeah. <laughs> and then the rest of us cool folks are grieving that it's over. <laughs> How many of you guys saw the finale? Okay. There's one line in the finale that I started crying. I had to admit, you know, I started crying. I, I, I was sitting there weeping. Um, the show, just like a lot of art, you guys, in our culture today, because I know there's some Christians, I read, this, I read this article on CNN, some of you guys have seen it, there's a movement among certain Christian communities to completely separate themselves from the world, and, and they're disconnecting themselves from anything and everything related to sort of the larger culture and society at large. Um, as you know, my perspective is very different on that. Everything in creation is both fallen and in need of redemption and also reflecting in some ways the glory of God. So even secular art, even secular art has redemptive things that Christians could look at and go, that reflects a part of God's glory. And Lost is, somebody say amen, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, and Lost is one of those. I mean, if you saw it, yeah, there were some, you know, stuff. I mean, the show at the end preached universalism, which is there are many paths to God and so on and so forth, and everybody at some point will kind of connect to God, and I don't believe that as a Christian. And there's certain things that you need to kind of, but there was redemptive things in the show, and, 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 and here's the line that... that, that, that uh, Gets to what I'm talking about. It's at the very end when Jack and his father, it's the last 15 minutes of the show, Jack realizes they make character. I, I, won't, I won't belabor the point for those of you that are like, good God, I thought, I thought my friends <laughs> were done talking about it and I got to hear from you. Look, just at the very end, Jack realizes he's dead and, 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 and he realizes he's in heaven, quote unquote. And his dad says to Jack, the most important part of your life was the time that you spent with these people. That's why all of you are here. Nobody does it alone. You needed all of them, and they needed you. And one of the most powerful elements of the show was that it connected with this innate longing, Christian or not, for community. For friendship. And it reminded me of this story that I briefly touched on two weeks ago or three weeks ago. It comes from the book of Mark, Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, verse 1. I'm just going to read it for you guys here. It says, A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by the four of them. And since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, lowered the mat, and the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. And you remember the question that I asked you guys two weeks ago? I said, do you have friends in your life that you refuse to leave behind? Do you have friends in your life that you refuse to leave behind? Do you have friends in your life that you can say, even if I have to pick you up and drag you with me, I'm not going to go any further on this journey without you? And then I ask you this following question, and that is, who will carry you? In other words, who have you so invested in? Who have you so built into this relationship? Who have you so given of your life to them that they refuse to leave you behind? That they're saying to you, you're paralyzed right now. Maybe not physically, emotionally, spiritually. You can't do this, but you know what? I'm not going to let you go alone. I refuse to let you go alone. I will carry you. And the question was asked, do you have friends that you have so built into and invested in uh, that in your greatest time of need, they were there to carry you? They were there to carry you to Jesus. Four friends carried one friend to Jesus so he could be healed. Our lives cannot be measured by how much money we make. Our lives cannot be measured by what kind of success we reach in our profession. Our lives cannot be measured by the notoriety. Our lives are ultimately measured by who you love, who loves you, and whose lives you have touched. African proverb, if you want to go fast, go alone. You want to go far, go together. We're in the book of Acts. And we are at... Why are you laughing? What? We're always in the book of Acts. We're in the book of Acts. Thank you, Byron. And you guys, book of Acts comes to a critical period. Up until this point that we're going to look at today in chapter 20 at the end in verse 21. Here's how Paul's life has been lived. He's pretty much made plans, goals, missionary journeys, planned them, and he's gone for it. And God's done amazing things, and churches are planted, revivals are breaking out. But from this point on, Paul's life is one series of trial after another from this point on its shipwreck its beatings from this point on its persecutions from this point on his life is hounded from this point on this point on paul goes through essentially the most difficult part of his life and you know what happens paul's swimming in friendships In the most difficult time period in his life, Paul, the super apostle Paul, spiritual guy, is swimming. He is intentionally pursuing and spending time with his friends. That ought to tell you something. We pick up the story in Acts chapter 20, verse 36. When he had said this, that is he had said his goodbye to the Ephesian elders, that he has spent three and a half years with. He knelt down with all of them and prayed. Guys, look at the passage carefully. Mentally picture the scene. They all wept as he embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. Chapter 21, verse 1. After we had torn ourselves. Do you see the picture? they they they're holding on to each other and they're saying paul just a few more minutes just a little longer do you have friends like that We put out to sea and sailed straight to Cos. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patara. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing through the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre where our ship was to unload its cargo. Finding the disciples there, we stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. But when our time was up, we left and continued on our way all the disciples and their wives and children accompanied us out of the city and there on the beach we knelt to pray do you see after saying goodbye to each other we went aboard the ship and they returned home here's what I want to talk to you about today I don't want to talk to you about community because we talk a lot about community. I'm going to press a little further, and I want to talk to you about something called spiritual friendship. Everybody say that with me, spiritual friendship. Say it again. Ready? Spiritual friendship. If you want a good book to read on community relationships, there's a great book from which I got this sort of definition from. It's a book called Connecting by a guy named Larry Crabb. Dr. Larry Crabb is a famed Christian psychologist who wrote this book, essentially to say, all the other stuff I've written for the last 20, 25 years, garbage. So he's gotten a lot of heat. Some of you guys have read his book called Inside Out, which was very, very powerful. He goes all the way back and says, it was all wrong. It was all wrong. And he wrote this book. Spiritual friendship, he doesn't specifically talk about that word or issue, but here's how I define spiritual friendship. I'm going to put it up on the screen. Spiritual friendship is a Christ-centered, intentional relationship between at least two people where the life of Christ is poured into each other, motivated by a vision of what another person is and could become because of Christ. Let me say that once more. Spiritual friendship is a Christ-centered, intentional relationship between at least two people. Where the life of Christ is poured into each other, motivated by a vision of what another person is and could become because of Christ. Now, I'll tell you why this sounds foreign to some of us, even Christians. We live in an age and culture of bromance movies. How many of you guys are familiar with the term bromance? How many of you guys have seen the movie I Love You Man? We live in a culture... Where there's tremendous angst, I'm just speaking to men, tremendous angst about how guys develop deep, intimate friendships with other guys. So the only way that we could kind of deal with it is to kind of make fun of it, make light of it, so on and so forth. So it's just, guys, it's this tension on one hand of going, I really want to get real, I really want to get vulnerable, but but you know what, that feels a little weird. So we're just going to make fun of each other. And none of the men are laughing, of course. But I don't just see this within non-Christian. I see this amongst Christians. Can I just tell you something? It is rare for me as a pastor, it creates my heart, that I see Christians who are friends that go deep. Christians' friends whose relationships are intentional. Christians whose friendships are centered on Christ and there is real iron sharpening iron. It is rare for me to find Christian friends who are so in love with Christ and so mutually edifying each other that there's a level of depth, there's a level of intimacy, there's a level of intentionality, there's this, the life of Christ being poured into the other that they walk away saying, I am walking away a better person, a fuller person because of you. It is rare. I see Christians with Hangout Buddies I see Christians with drinking buddies. I see Christians with poker playing buddies. And none of those are wrong. But my question is this. How deep? And I am talking about community groups and small groups. Can I tell you something? This isn't going to happen within 10, 12 friends. Some of you guys have been saying that. Like, I go to a community group, but it's not. You know what I think community groups are for? Okay? I've never said this before in our church, but I'm going to say it here. Community groups, I think, are that place where you could develop spiritual friendships with like two other people and go deep go real deep real deep it's the kind of friendship that C.S. Lewis talked about in his book Four Loves that's why why it's so powerful C.S. Lewis in this book talks about his two other friends one named Charles and the other guy named Ronald Ronald by the way is Jared Tolkien the Lord of the Rings fame these three guys hung out at bars They, they, they smoked cigars and they drank beer But there was something even more profound about their friendship. And C.S. Lewis paints it this way. His friend Charles dies. And C.S. Lewis, on one hand, grieves the death of his friend Charles. But on the other hand, there is a sense of, you know what? Now I get to know Ronald better. And we really, really get deep. And this is what he says. In each of my friends, there is something that only the other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I'm not large enough to bring out the whole person into activity. And C.S. Lewis says, now that Charles is dead, I'll never get to see Ronald's reaction to one of Charles' jokes. And he says, instead of having more of Ronald, I get less of him because Charles is gone. We talk about this in the context of community because if this is true of human relationships, and by the way, if you're married, you know this, right? You think you know your spouse and all of a sudden another person enters the equation. You're like, where'd you come from? (laughs) Yeah? Yeah? If that's true of human relationships, think about God. Think about God. Why is diversity so important? If you're praying with same kinds of people or want no, nobody else, if you're, if you're talking about spiritual things with nobody else, if you're doing none of those things, or maybe you're doing it with people that are just like you, you're going to miss out on who God is because it's in diversity and different kinds of people that bring out different aspects and facets of God that you get a fuller picture of who God is. That's what friendships do. It gives you this, this avenue to dig into and get to know. Wow. I would have never known that about God if it wasn't for you, if it wasn't for you. Do you have spiritual friends? Can I make a confession? Say, go ahead, Peter. I was going to wait till the very end. Um, I don't have a lot of friends. I'm preaching to myself this morning. I don't have these kinds of friends in my life. I want it. I yearn for it, but I don't. And there are a number of reasons why. I don't know. Depending on how vulnerable I feel today, I, I let you know some of my junk and garbage. But I don't. I don't. And my guess is majority of you don't either. You have friends, shallow, superficial. You have hangout buddies. You have people maybe even in your community group. But as you think about, do I, can I think of one or two people in my life that that depth? This passage teaches us these principles. I'm just going to plow out through them. Ready? Here we go. Passage teaches us the necessity of spiritual friends. Necessity of spiritual friends. Paul is going through the most difficult time in his life. And we'll talk about them in the upcoming weeks as we go through trial after trial. Paul's ultimate dream, you guys remember, was to go to Rome. And he does go to Rome. The center of the secular world. But you know how he gets to Rome? In chains. He's going through the most difficult part of his life. And yet... Picture after picture, what we're going to see is friends, friends, friends. Look at this picture here. They walk him to the beach. They're spending hours and hours weeping, discussing, talking, and even arguing, too we'll get to in a little bit. He is swimming in friends. What does this teach us? To need and to want spiritual friendships or deep friendships is not a sign of spiritual immaturity, but a sign of spiritual maturity you know what i think the church is really messed up on we don't know what holistic discipleship looks like here's what i mean many of you think you spiritually grow by getting more information that's why you come sit on a sunday hear a sermon you've learned something and you walk out thinking that you've changed the disciples of jesus did not experience transformation because of information they experienced transformation because they spend time with jesus Their life transformation, spiritual maturity, was caught by observing, watching, relating as much as it was taught. We've done a disservice in the church to make you guys believe that information leads to transformation. It doesn't. Relationships lead to transformation. To one friendship. Here's why I say this. Because I, I don't know about some of you, thought this for a long time. If I'm really spiritually mature, I don't need people. If I'm really spiritually mature, I ought to handle it myself, which is one of the reasons why I have a lot of friends. I'm trying to re-undo a lot of bad patterns in my life. If I'm really spiritually mature, I am the independent, self-sufficient answer guy. It's only recently I'm learning. Life change, transformation. It's relationships. I've talked to you guys before about the theological weirdness that we see in the book of Genesis. Before sin enters the world, God declares everything good, but there's one thing that God says, not good. What is that? It's when Adam was alone. Adam's alone, and God declares everything else in creation good, but Adam, being alone, God says, that's, that's not good. Here's the theological weirdness. Adam is lonely, not because he's imperfect, but Adam's lonely because he's Perfect. The longing, the ache that he has for friendship and relationship is the one ache that comes before sin. God creates man in such a way that he can't even enjoy paradise without relationship. You and I know what this is like. I've shared this with you before. The greatest joy that I get is when I introduce my friends to some of my greatest joys. You've never had Korean food? Are you kidding me? Never? You've never had kalbi? All right, man. I'll take your kalbi. Sit down order and i just sit there and watch <laughs> i'm not serious ask people that I, I just sit there and watch right i just go and i watch them fumble around with their chopsticks i go you could use a fork you know okay fine fork give me a fork and they did and they put in their mouth and you know you know what happens right they put in their mouth and they go this is and i sit there and i go i know <laughs> I could eat coffee by myself but just simple aesthetic experience like eating when someone else enjoys what you enjoy isn't that incredible same thing with music a guy in our church introduced me to this band some class Adam what's the name of the band again Kronos Quartet pop that sucker in my CD player here and I were driving and Adam because he's been talking to me about it and, and I was like nice this is cool. And I've been listening to it for like two and a half days. And I'm going, I can't wait to introduce this. to. I could give you example, example. God has created us in such a way that even aesthetic experiences, Adam doesn't enjoy paradise without relationship. Listen, Adam had perfect quiet time, 24 hours a day. <laughs> he had the perfect prayer life. He knew God intimately. The thing that you and I go, if I could only, and yet in completeness, until if you're lonely and you want friends these kinds of friends it's because you're not a tree or a machine there's nothing wrong with you wanting these kinds if you're sitting there going I want that Peter I long for that it's a sign of spiritual health of maturity by the way this is so This is also the reason why it's so dangerous when you and I Christians flippantly say to people things like, you know, all you need is God. Yes and no. If someone is struggling with idolatry, yes, all you need is God. But if someone is struggling with loneliness and depression, it is unbiblical to say to them, all you need is God. Even God doesn't think that. Even God doesn't think that. When was the last time not only God, but people gave you life? When's the last time somebody said or did something to you and he gave you life? God gives life, but so do people. Now, here's the thing. There's some of you sitting in there today, and I know our city. I know our church. And you're saying to yourself, you know what? I don't need or I don't want that kind of friends. And for many of us, it's subconscious. As I'm speaking today, there are some of you here today who have said goodbye to friends in the last month. And man, that's hard. Can I get, that's hard. That's hard in the city of Chicago because you're constantly saying goodbye, right? You invest, you build, and someone says, I'm moving on, man. I got to, and it's hard. And after a while, that takes its toll. And after a while, it is natural for some of us to go, I don't want to do it anymore. I don't want to invest. It's painful saying goodbye. Goodbye. For some of us, it's hard because, I mean, let's face it, guys. Once you enter your 40s, it's really hard to make friends. You have very small margins in your life for friendships. You know what I mean? (laughs) I know, I'm screwed up. I know. I saw me going, no, we have no idea what you're talking about. For me, for me, I find it very difficult to develop friendships at this stage in my life. You know? And for some of us, we've been hurt. We've been disappointed. But most of us is subconscious. I rarely meet somebody, though, who says, You know what, Peter? Consciously, I can say, I don't need and I don't want those kinds of spiritual friends. I'm fine. Very rarely for most of us is subconscious. And let me urge you, beg of you, exhort you, even if you've invested and said goodbye, even if you've been disappointed, even if, even if it's hard. Please, please, please pursue these friendships or else your heart will get hard. See, Paul wasn't the only person who uh, needed friends. There was another person who was even stronger than Paul who had 12 friends. Jesus says in John fifteen thirteen, greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I call you friends for everything that I learned from my Father I have made known to you. It's amazing that Jesus surrounded himself with friends who constantly misunderstood him, let him down, fell asleep on him during his most critical hour of need. Not once, not twice, but three times. And yet Jesus constantly is opening up, constantly putting himself out there in vulnerability, constantly bearing his soul. Are you letting yourself need people? That's the question that a friend of mine asked me. Peter, are you letting yourself need people? Some of you guys know me. And my answer was, yeah, of course. He said, really? He said, tell me. Who are the friends in your life that know you so well, and you have given them freedom that any time of the day, any place, they can call you and say, Hey, what's going on? And so we got talking at In N Out Burgers in San Diego and talked for two hours. And I tried to convince him and said, I think my Peter, uh, his name is Peter. I said, Peter, I think my problem is, so there's two Peters talking in now. I said, you know, Peter, I think my problem is I'm too prideful, you know? That's why I don't want to need people. I'm too prideful. I'm selfish. And he looks at me and he goes, no, that's not your issue. He says, you don't trust. To which I very proudly said, you're wrong. (laughs) I'm prideful. That's why I don't need people. He, He looked at me, he didn't flinch. He goes, no, you don't trust people. I don't, I don't, I don't trust people and that makes some of you guys really uncomfortable because your pastor stand up in front of you and going, he doesn't trust people. No, I don't, I don't. I have massive trust issues. So I keep people at bay and I convince myself it's because I'm proud, I'm arrogant. No, no, no. It's, I don't trust Don't ask me why I don't trust. I don't know, actually. Honestly, I don't know. I'm delving into that right now. that make you uncomfortable? Okay. Are you letting yourself need people? Because here's the issue. If you're not letting yourself need people right now, when you actually need people, they're not going to be there for you. I've used this illustration before, right? Nobody walks around going... Air. I love air. Air. It's good for my brain. Good for my heart. Air. You know when you say, <coughs> air is when you're underwater. And you don't realize you need people until you're emotionally under. <laughs> and when you can't breathe and you need people and you haven't invested, they're not going to be there. Necessity of spiritual friends. Secondly, discovery of spiritual friends. Let's keep going. Discovery of spiritual friends. You can't really tell from the text, but when you read a bunch of commentaries, most commentators point out that in Tyre, where Paul is at and spending seven days before he goes to Jerusalem, that's a church that he didn't plant. In other words, when he gets to Tyre, city of Tyre, he's meeting people that he's not known. He's meeting people for the very first time. These aren't his converts. These aren't people that he's ministered to. There are brand new Christians that are going that Paul has never known and met until this point. And yet you notice the incredible moving scene on the beach. They're weeping. They're kneeling. They're hugging. They're kissing. They're deeply moving. Their children are involved. And you know what this shows? This shows the powerful principle that we talk a lot about in our church, and that is even with people that you have nothing in common with, no affinity with socioeconomically, racially, ethnically, culturally, even if you have nothing in common with people, when you have the commonality of Christ as risen Lord and King in your life, there is a bond that exerts itself that's powerful than anything else in the world. There is a powerful bond. See, here's the thing about friendships that our culture just doesn't seem to understand, which contributes to rampant, superficial shallowness. The basis for deep, true friendship is not that the two people are looking at each other, but they're looking at something else. The basis for deep, true, meaningful friendship is not two people saying, you want to be my friend? Yeah, I'll be your friend. But it's two people who are looking at something else and saying, isn't that cool? I share a passion for that. I share a love for that. I share an intensity for that. You do too? Friendship. Friendships can't be made out of nothing. Or friendships can't be just made out of, will you be my friend? We have hobbies in common. Two friendships are forged when two people are not looking at each other, but something else that's more powerful than them. And that, that picture of Paul and all the people kneeling on the beach is the most profound picture of what deep friendship is. They are kneeling before the same king. And that is bringing them together so that strangers who've met for the first time share an emotional, spiritual bond of such depth. Let me give you an illustration of this. And there may be a little side kind of trail. How many of you guys believe that whoever you marry should be your best friend? So those of you that didn't raise your hand, I'm guessing that you vote no. That's okay. I'm not asking for unanimous vote. I'm asking for majority. I believe in my heart of hearts that whoever you marry should be your best friend. Here's the reason why. If you're willing to date and be in a serious relationship with somebody who is not a Christian, then you either don't expect that person to be your best friend or Jesus isn't the center of your life. Let me say it once more. I know some of you guys want to like walk out right now, but listen, just, just hang in there with me. If you're a Christian and you're saying, you know what? I'm okay with dating somebody who's not a Christian. I'm telling you right now that either you don't expect this person to be your best friend or Jesus isn't the center of your life. Why? Don't you want that person to understand the depths of who you are? Don't you want that person to understand the depth of who you are, what makes you tick? And if the basic foundation of that relationship, of your relationship, is Christ and Christ alone, if the basis of, of, of your passion in life why you get up in the morning is the fact that Christ loves you and that you have a mission and purpose in life, and if that is the driving force, the driving impulse of your life, can you be with somebody for the rest of your life who says, you know what, I'm glad you're into that, but I'm really not. So I might come to church with you once in a while, but ultimately it's your deal. If you're a Christian and you're willing to date and marry somebody who doesn't share that passion of yours, you're okay with dating somebody who's never going to be your best friend or Jesus Christ isn't the center of your life. To which somebody goes, that just narrowed down the candidates, Peter. No, you know what it did? I just deepened your understanding of what a marriage is. I just forced you not to be shallow. You want to marry someone who is your best friend. Someone who is kneeling before the same Jesus and saying, I'm passionate about that. Are you? Yeah. I'm intense about that. Are you? Yeah. I'm in love with that. Are you? Yeah. True spiritual friendships, deep community, happens with people who are in love and are passionate about the same thing you're in love with. If you want nothing but approval, Everybody, can you look up here? For some of us, all we want is somebody to just like us, approve of us, think we're okay, think we're cool. If you want nothing but approval or nothing but just friendship, if that's all you're wanting, that you won't have these kinds of deep spiritual friends because deep spiritual friendships where soul sharing happens is always about something else and not just about each other. C.S. Lewis said this. That's why those pathetic people, by the way, it's a little harsh. That's why those pathetic people who simply want friends can never make any. The very condition of having friends is that we should want something besides friends. If someone asks you, do you see the same truth? And the honest answer is, I don't care about that. I just want you to be my friend. Then no real friendship can arise. There will be nothing that the friendship would be about. Those that want nothing share nothing. Those that want nothing can have no fellow travelers. You're sitting there going, why don't, I have these, why don't I have these kinds of friends in my life? It could be, it could be that your passion for Christ and your love for Jesus might not be where it needs to be. Do you guys find this to be true? As a pastor, I see this. I see a man or woman who is absolutely in love with Jesus and is passionate for him. And I just see people just being drawn to them. There's a joy. About them, There's a peace about them. There's a vitality about them. And I see men and women just hovering and, hey, hey, hey. If, if you want deep friendships with people, make it a priority to get in with God much more than to get in with friends. And then maybe people will be drawn to you. Third principle is the making of spiritual friends. The making of spiritual friends. What do I mean? This passage shows friendship takes a tremendous amount of work. In a sense, the gospel gives you the raw material, right? Christ, but you have to work at it. And this text shows us what it takes to have such friends. Before I go through this, can I just say two things, everybody? Number one, you know what this means practically for some of you? You have lots of very shallow friends and no deep ones. This for you may mean going home today and prayerfully considering what would it mean for me to approach two or three people of this vast array and commit to them and commit to each other about becoming deeper friends. It may mean saying goodbye, if you will, to some. Secondly, for those of you that have been sitting here today, you're going, you know what, Peter, here's the problem. See, I have non-Christian friends that are much deeper than Christian friends. I get along better with none. I I hear that all the time. And so here's what I'll say to you about that. This is the best reason why, why you should be motivated to share Christ with them. Here's what I mean. We say in our church, don't love people to evangelize them, right? Don't use them. Don't make them a project. Nobody likes that. You wouldn't like it either. So don't love them. Build friendships with them just to evangelize them in order to love them. What do I mean? Love them just for who they are. Get to know them for who they are and then share Christ with them. And what would happen if that deep friendship you already share without Christ, what would happen to that friendship if Christ became the center? Powerful. So think and pray about how those non-Christians that you are really close to have deep friendships with, you might be able to share Christ with them. Okay, so making of spiritual friends. I'm going to get very practical. First, you got to share time. You got to share time. C.S. Lewis and Four Loves comments that every other kind of love is pushed on you. There's an external force that's pushed on you. Romantic love? Hormones. Don't need motivation. Romantic love? Hormones. Family love? Asians. Duty. Obligation. Yes, mom. Yes, dad. I will do it. Citizenship love? I don't want to do jury duty, but I have to. Forced on me. Friendship love, here's the problem. There are no external sociological, biological forces. So you don't have to take time, intentionality, pursue it. Secondly, you got to share feelings. Look at this scene they're weeping, they're kissing, they're embracing. Can I talk to men for a second? You can't have these kinds of deep friendships with other men unless you're willing to share your feelings and be vulnerable. Am I the only guy that struggles with this? Let me tell you about an incident. One of my deep good friends is a guy named Dave Olson who is the director of Church Growth and Evangelism in our denomination. He's a good 10, 12 years older than me. He has pursued this friendship with me in a very godly way. I love this man. He speaks the gospel into my life, and I'll talk about that at the end. And our friendship, you know, we were spending a lot of time together. One day we were going to dinner, we were walking, right? Just walking along. He's a Swedish guy, okay? Swedes are not very emotional, affectionate people. Swedish guy. He stops, he looks at me, and he goes, Peter, I love you. And I'm walking, I'm walking. (laughs) Ten seconds go by. And he goes, Peter. I just want you to know, I love you. <laughs> I said, I'm not even. I said, all right then. That's good. That's good. That's good. That's good, Dave. <laughs> Keep walking. Keep walking. We got to dinner. We're sitting there, and I'm really caught off guard. But I'm sitting there, just like I don't want to look at his eyes. I'm like going, this is weird. Like, and there's nothing, you know. I'm sitting there going, and, and I realize and I've said this to you guys before. Like, I've never heard my father say to me, a male figure in my life, say to me, like, affectionately, lovingly, I love you. And I talked about it with Dave. I openly said to him, I said, Dave, can I just share something? I said, that made me really uncomfortable. To which he goes, I know. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, then why'd you do it? And he says, I want to go deeper in our friendship." In order for us to go deeper in our friendship, you need to know that I love you. You need to hear me tell you that I love you. That has opened doors where he has permission now, and this is the second part of the sharing feelings, where anytime, anywhere, he has permission to ask me, Peter, how are you really doing? And he expects me to give him an honest answer. He's mentoring me in this area to say to other men in my life that I care about, Michael, I love you. David, I love you. You got to share your feelings. Third, you got to share your things. Notice that Paul is not, he's staying with people. We'll talk about this more uh, next week. Hospitality. People open their homes. They're feeding him. They're sharing things with him. Fourth, you got to share decisions. Again, he's going to tire where most commentators say that that's not a church that he's planted. So he's meeting people for the first time. But you see the, you notice the amazing thing in chapter 20, and verse four. These people, Apostle Paul, super Apostle Paul, they've never met him, and yet they have the audacity to say to Paul, hey, the spirit spoke to us and we don't want you to go to Jerusalem. And Paul doesn't sit there and go, who the heck are you? He listens. And he says, you know what? I appreciate that. But the Holy Spirit is prompting me to go. And so therefore, what is he doing? He's opening up his life, even for decisions in his life. Too deep friendships can only happen when you realize there's no such thing as unilateral decision making. There's no such thing as, you know what? I'm not going to ask anybody. I'm not going to consult anybody. My life is my life, my own. Who I date, where I spend my money, where I go. None of this is nobody else's business. I'm just going to... Too deep friendships... At the center of it all is a willingness to open your life up, to have people speak into your life, even for decisions. Some of you have decisions that are coming up. Are you telling anybody? Are you asking anybody? Are there people that you so trust and are confidants to you that you've asked them, hey, what do you think? True friendships share decisions together. And then lastly, true friendships share faith. Jesus is at the center of these relationships. They're constantly talking about the Lord. They're talking about the gospel. They're praying together. They're pouring into each other the life of Christ as that life empowers them. You guys, what I'm going to talk about in the next few minutes and then we're wrapping this thing up is the most important And yet the most challenging thing that I've ever said in the life of our church, because it's something that you and I both know kind of intuitively in our hearts. But when you think about the prospect of actually doing it, it's scary. And yet, one thing you can't get away from is that in Scripture, time and time and time and time again, it says to us, believers need to preach the gospel to each other. Believers need to preach the gospel to each other. We need to preach the gospel. We need to hear the gospel. We need to preach. There's a constant dynamic of preaching the gospel to each other. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. See to it that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. And mark this word, encourage one another daily, as long as it is today, that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. And the word encourage there, some of your Bibles say exhort, is another Greek word to preach. Is another Greek word for preaching. And what literally the author of Hebrews is saying is, make sure that you are as a Christian preaching, exhorting, encouraging the gospel and truth of the gospel into the life of another, into the life of another, into the life of another on a constant basis. Because if you don't, your heart will get hardened. And I know that very few of us have friends in our lives because you think you come on a Sunday. Peter, that's your job. You preach the gospel to us. No, the Bible says that God meant that this Christian community to be in such a way that we are in small groups, community groups. We are in deep friendships, preaching the gospel, declaring the gospel to one another. Everything that ails us in our lives is because of the lack of belief in, deep awareness of having our souls connect and resonate with the truth of the gospel. Isn't that true? Yes. Our marriage issues... Our greediness, our materialism, our lack of care for those who are genuinely... All the issues that plague us at the end of the day, fundamentally, the Bible says, is because we know it here, but it hasn't penetrated hearts. We're not living in awareness of it. We're not digging and utilizing it. Everything about us that ails us is because the God... It's not that we're not trying hard enough. For crying out loud, how many of us are sick of trying hard enough? I am... It's not because we're not trying hard enough. The Bible says the problem is gospel-centered, gospel proclamation of who we are in Christ and what he has done. Until it captures our hearts, until it resonates within our hearts, until it melts our hearts, until it is powerfully real in our hearts, we will continue to struggle as a believer. And the Bible says that we need to do this now, immediately. If you're following what you're going, okay, but here's the problem, Peter. I don't believe it. I'm not living in awareness of it. I'm not really living it out. Can anybody, could, anybody, anybody? Just Kevin? Okay. Then I could uh, go on. Majority of us, our issues are, we know it here. You hear me say it every week. Although we are more wicked and sinful than we dare believe. Although we are more defective and lost than we dare believe. We are more accepted. We are more loved unconditionally than we dared hope. At the same time, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. And that sucker needs to resonate within our hearts. It needs to melt our hearts. It needs to be real in our hearts. It needs to come to an awareness in our hearts. And many of us are going, it's not, Peter. And I think Paul knew that. Because if we're going to do this to each other, we need to have it affect us. You can't give something that you haven't experienced. You can't pour into something you're not experiencing on your own. And Paul, knowing this throughout all of his letters, does something that has been tremendously helpful for me. And I want to share this as a practical help for you. You know what he does? After declaring who God is and what he has done, in first three chapters of Ephesians, he prays, he prays, he prays. It's as if he's saying getting the gospel into your heart is not something that you do intellectually alone. Getting the gospel into your heart is not something that you just do emotionally alone. Getting the gospel into your heart is not something that you just do by discipline and effort. Getting the gospel into your heart, getting the gospel welded into your heart requires Holy Spirit fire. So he prays all the time. And look at one of his prayers. Ephesians chapter 3 verse 14. For this reason I kneel before the Father. I pray that out of his glorious just, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Paul, didn't you just talk about that? Yes, I spent an entire chapter on it. Why are you praying it? Because you will not believe it and live it until the Holy Spirit wells it into your heart with this fire. And I pray that being rooted in established in love, You may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. Everything that Paul talked about, everything that Paul reiterated in a very elaborate, articulate way, Paul prays, Paul prays, Paul prays. prays, And he says, I want you to really know it. I want you to really know it. I want you to really know it. So here's what I've done. Here's what I've done i try to make a discipline in my life that every every day I get up in the morning, I have it on my phone right here. Every day I get up in the morning, I roll over. I roll over and I pray this gospel prayer. I pray this gospel prayer. And I start my day, I start my day with this gospel prayer because I'm acknowledging to myself, A, God, I can't give something that I don't have. I can't tell something that I haven't experienced myself. And secondly, God, I need this just to get through today. I need your gospel to become alive in my heart. I need your gospel to become aware in my heart. I need your gospel, God, to become true and real in my life. So here's my prayer that I try and begin every day with. And I don't do well all the time. First prayer is this. It's a prayer for his unmerited love and grace. God, because I'm in Christ and I know there's nothing I can do today that would make you love me anymore. And there's nothing that I have done that makes you love me any less. I pray that. I pray that into my heart. I pray that into my soul. I can't just walk away from this intellectually and say, yeah, I believe it. I I pray it into my heart. You know what happens? This helps me remember who God has made me by his grace in Christ. It helps to remember that according to Jesus in John chapter 17, Jesus loves me. God loves me now as he loves Jesus. And so the thought that I can add to his love or take away from his love by what I do, all of a sudden becomes absurd. And I pray this prayer in my heart. I pray this prayer. I say, Holy Spirit, massage it into my heart. I can't do this. I can't do this intellectually alone. Massage. Second prayer that I pray. Roll out of my bed, joy in Christ's sufficiency. God, your love, your grace, your mercy, your presence, and ultimately your approval is all I need to have joy today. And I just pray this in my heart. I pray this in my heart. I pray this in my heart. Your pastor, who's been preaching for 20 years, only four or five years ago, came to this realization that the gospel is ultimately what's going to bring about life transformation when it becomes real. So I pray this prayer. Why? Because my tendency is towards idolatry. My tendency is to seek other people's approval, other people's opinions. My tendency is to seek ministry success. My tendency is to seek all these other things before God. So I pray this prayer. Join Christ's efficiency. And then third, and some of you This is your most important prayer today. It's to rest in God's goodness. And I want you to say this with me. Will you say this prayer with me? And make this your prayer. Here we go, together, ready? God, despite my circumstances, everything the gospel tells me about your intentions for my life is true. And I pray this prayer, I pray this prayer. And I'm reminded in the gospel, God shows me that God's intentions, his intentions, regardless of circumstances in my life, are blessing and not cursing. God's intentions for my life are hope and not despair. God's intentions for my life are resurrection and not death. And I, I, I remind myself that God's plans for my life, God's plans for my family life, God's plans for my ministry are good even beyond my imaginations. God's intentions for my life are even beyond my imaginations. And I remind myself through this prayer that God wants to work in and through me. I remind myself through this prayer, church, to expect great things from God, as someone once said, and attempt great things for God. I pray this into my soul. I pray this into my soul and I pray this into my soul. It has taken weeks and months and years. And I still don't fully get it. I hope that doesn't come as a discouragement to you. You're going, Are you kidding me? That was very helpful. So if I pray that, like in the next month, gospel? No, no. It's been a weekly, monthly, daily battle with Satan, battle with the world, battle with my flesh, to constantly, constantly absorb the truth of the gospel so that it goes from here to here. What does it look like to preach the gospel to each other? I'm just going to give you guys some examples and then we're done. Uni, you can come on up. These are real-life examples of things that happened. How do we preach the gospel to each other? You could take literally the definition of the gospel and say to somebody, hey, remember what Peter said? Although we are more wicked, blah, blah, blah. Or you could do this. Just an example. I had a woman walk into my office. And her issue is what a lot of you deal with. Her issue, her identity is in people needing her. You know anybody like that? Her affirmation is the fact that she is needed. So here's her life. She has no margins. Her calendar is full. She can't say no. There's no boundaries. She's going from one crisis management to another. Why? Because ultimately, her identity is found. Her identity and worth is found in the fact that people need her. So out of an hour and a half conversation, what do I basically do? I don't try and play psychologist. I don't try. Although those things are wonderful. But here's what I do. As I hear her, the essential truth that I'm trying to communicate to her is this. You are God's beloved child. Your worth and identity is not found in what you do, in people needing you. Your worth and identity is found in the fact that Jesus Christ died for you. You were so sinful that he had to die for you, but you were so valued that he was glad to die for you. Jesus died out of unconditional love of you, not out of need of you. You are his child. Rest in his unconditional love for you and acceptance of you. Preaching the gospel. I had another guy that came into my office this week and his struggle, he's struggling with certain sin. He's been a Christian all of his life and because of this certain sin, he's not only feeling anxious, but he's feeling insecure because at the bottom of his heart, he's thinking, you know what? The way that I'm accepted by God is by my performance, rules, how well I obey them classic classic scenario of a lot of us religious people so he came into my office our conversation over coffee and the whole time what does it mean for me to preach the gospel in this life here's what i'm saying to this guy where you stand with god is not determined by your performance If you do well today and you do poorly tomorrow, it doesn't mean that God all of a sudden changes his approach towards you. Your standing with God has nothing to do with your performance. Your standing with God has everything to do with Christ's performance in his death and resurrection. But Peter, I want to live more of an obedient life. Yes, but if you get the gospel, you can't live an obedient life because you're afraid that if you don't obey, God's going to punish you. The gospel tells you that he paid at an infinite cost for your sins and he says he will never leave you in assurance of that live in obedience and by the way i don't scream at them like that i gentle (laughs) third example a guy walked in he's struggling with he's struggling with the fact that he just feels like a bad husband anybody relate yeah like three of us just like a bad husband and he's just feeling like you know what i am i'm worth like i i'm such a Terrible person, Peter. And I just sat there and listened to him. Listen, listen. I just sat there and listened to him. And I had a smile on my face. And he goes, what are you smiling at? I said, you just poured Christ into me. What are you talking about? I just told you I suck as a husband. I said, but you know what? Are you aware of how much this bothers you? What do you mean? It's eating you up inside. I don't know about you, but it has to work with the Holy Spirit, man. What? Yeah. You want to be a better husband so badly that this, this just eats you up inside. Christ is at work in you, whether you see it or not. Every single one of us Need somebody to look at us and say, I believe in you. If you are fortunate enough to have spiritual friends in your life who are speaking into your life the truth, I believe in you. Remember, the word encouragement it comes from the word encourage. To encourage somebody is to literally instill courage. After I preached on that, I had somebody email me and said, Peter, tell me this. Why is it that when somebody says a negative thing about us, it takes like 10 more times, 10 more times, 10 more encouraging things for like the two negative things. You ever wonder, you know why that's the case? Because all of us, we already know we're jacked up. We already know we're messed up. We already know we suck. We already know we got junk. We already know that. So when a criticism comes, it just validates, you're right. I suck. Thank you very much. And it 's much harder for somebody to come and say, oh, no, 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 I see the junk, I see the mess, but there it is. there it is, the good, but i don 't believe it. Of course you don 't. You are so focused on your mess and junk and your, where you 're at and the issues and stuff. The reason why it 's so much harder to encourage and put courage into somebody is because when you do that it 's unnatural. And yet when you're criticized in our sinful nature, it's very natural to go, he's right. And the Bible says, you and I are to come against that by preaching the gospel. (laughs) Somebody said to me, Peter, that sounds like pop psychology. Positive thinking. I believe in you, Nathan. I believe in you. I believe. No, it's not. When I say, Nathan, I believe in you, I'm affirming the fact that God is at work in him, and that God believes in you. Declared everywhere you go, Kevin. I believe in you. You know, I'm not a very encouraging guy, so I'm just going to flippantly say that. But I believe in you. Know why? The Bible says God is at work in you. He will finish the work he began in you and the negative things that you've heard all your life that's so natural to you i'm coming at you with the gospel and saying you are more wicked and sinful than you dare believe but you're more accepted and loved than you dare to Is what I want you to do there is something I want you to do the last point that we didn't put up is who can you prayerfully approach to say hey will you covenant with me who can you approach and say hey will you be this kind of a friend where we'll be intentional. We'll pursue Christ. We'll share things, our feelings, our emotions and decisions. And we will commit to doing this. We will commit to doing this. Won't be sporadic. Won't be casual about it. We will commit and covenant to doing this. Who can you approach today? And ask that of. think of him, And for those of you during this short prayer time, if you go, I don't know anybody, Peter. I don't have anybody. Will you prayerfully ask God to reveal things in your heart that would draw you closer to Him first things first so that you would have your heart absolutely blown away and transformed by the gospel. Become that friend that someone would want to be with. And that friend just might show up. i yeah. My prayer is that our church community will be the kind of community where these kinds of friendships are happening everywhere in this city every day of the week, every moment of the day. And God, for people like me and others maybe in this congregation who struggle with this intensely, I pray and ask you Holy Spirit for your help reveal in my heart whatever the issues and things might be and help me to take it to the cross where the truth of your gospel might be redemptive and healing and God my issues of trust that I would be able to God by the power of the living resurrected Christ in me to you depend on you God and be the kind of person that could be the kind of friend to someone in need and for anyone else struggling today Holy Spirit that you would minister to them that you would speak to their hearts Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Hey, Rusty, come on up, man. Rusty asked if we could do this at another time, but I want to be able to say. Many of you know Rusty and Lynette. They're folks... We sent off to Thailand yeah. I wanted to wait because if I did it earlier there was no way I was going to get through the sermon okay God gifted them with a the child Olive in Thailand and the baby had a series of complications and, and they kept us updated our church family throughout the whole ordeal they came back to the States a few months ago in hopes that through medicine and treatment that things would get better. But Olive went home to be with the Lord a couple months ago. And uh, these guys have been in Indiana uh, trying to get healed and get restored. I met up with Rusty yesterday for coffee and we had a really good conversation. And he said, Do you mind if I uh, just address the congregation and thank them? So,
1: see if I can get through this. Just wanted to be here to thank you guys as a church body. Those of you who have prayed for us over these last months, um, and who kept praying when none of our prayers were answered that we were hoping would be answered, I want to thank those of you who wrote us notes or sent us emails, and people that were just really present um, over these months. Just let me pull myself together. <laughs> what Pastor Peter shared this morning about community and those deep relationships in your life and just the importance of them. When you go through an experience where everything you think should be and whatever makes sense and you think, why wouldn't God choose to heal a child with a brain hemorrhage or why wouldn't God choose to have the surgery work? And you know that Ultimately his good plan is for that child to be healed and to be well. And when your faith gets really confusing and your theology gets really confusing, it's it's the body of Christ that continues to draw you back to Jesus. And it's it's not the it's not the Christians who come to you with the answers and who tell you the right Bible verses. or It's not the ones who have a word from the Lord for you, necessarily. It's the ones who just sit and cry with you, and who weep with you, and and who say, I think Jesus is weeping with you, too. And it's not because he doesn't have control, and he couldn't ultimately intercede and do something, but it's because he sees a lot more than we can see right now. I think when we're in a situation all we can see is the next thing in front of us and what we think should be. But I think he's weeping with us because yeah. he sees everything. He sees far above and beyond. He sees what maybe Olive's life could have been like if she would have stayed. And he sees that she's not suffering anymore. So that's the importance of the body of Christ. It's just the presence of close friends with you in times when nothing makes sense and God feels really silent and he feels really far away. But people reminding you that he's that He's still there and he's still good. So thank you for walking with us.
0: There's really no Lynette said said it. I knew that I wasn't gonna talk because she uh, she had she just said what what um, exactly I'm feeling, and um, we just want you to know that we're very, very thankful for you. And um, yeah, our futures are still up in the air, and we're trying to make decisions. Um, but thank you guys. Service, uh, no. Come on over. I want us to be the body of Christ. So there's gonna be no closing song, nice bow, neat, and we're done with the service. If anybody feels led to pray for Rusty and Lynette, because they're gonna eventually go back home and visit, maybe some other time. I want you to come in and join us up in this area. The rest of you that need to go and have a great weekend, go have a great, great weekend. Be safe. We'll see you back here next week. But if you feel led to come up and just put your hands, love on these guys and pray on these guys, come on up. Come on. Let's pray.